You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Big hello to Riverside, California. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And I'd like to also say hello to Raina in West Virginia, apparently a new listener who was not aware that we even existed and uh, started <laughs> listening and says now she's an addict and listens to us in the car at work and all the time and everyone thinks she's a super fingerprint nerd. So good Fantastic. for you, Raina. All right. Hi, Raina. And in an effort to get word further out to all those fingerprint nerds out there, I have... Uh, I don't know, stepped into the 2010s, I guess, uh, and gotten on Twitter. Uh, if you tweet, I guess that's the, the word that the kids are using nowadays. Um, or Twittering. Twittering, right. <laughs> For all those out there who are Twitterpated, um, look me up uh, at Ray Forensics. I'm trying to send some stuff out every day or so. And then obviously when the new episodes finally uh, get uploaded, uh, that'll also kind of automatically send out a tweet about the uh, the new episodes available and ready for listening. So, yeah, that's cool. Good for yep, you. Yep, absolutely. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Glenn, what have you been up to recently? Oh, um, I am sick. I've got a nice little cold brewing Oh, no. Um, I did some presentations for attorneys uh, this week and uh, went, went well. We informed them of some new changes Um that we're, we're making in the drug chemistry section. Some new new tests, actually, old tests that we're bringing back uh, and uh, doing a new kind of testing system, which avoids some instrumental analysis, but it's a little faster on the front end. So we're hoping this will address some backlog concerns, etc. But um, it's, it's been fun dealing with attorneys and, and trying to, to work with them. <laughs> to, right. To convince them that it's reliable testing and will be helpful, it's just different than what they, they're used to. Okay. You? Well, I, uh, this past weekend, um, went, my brother and I went to, and some other friends, uh, went to uh, downtown Phoenix where they had the, uh, the annual Strong Beer Festival. Um, so it was um, one of the big parks. Uh, it's called Indian School Park in just kind of the north end of downtown Phoenix. And... Hundreds and hundreds of vendors were there from all over the country. Uh, all you, when you walked in, you got a little taste sampling cup, uh, glass mm-hmm. plastic cup kind of thing, and then uh, forty tickets to spend as you choose for little two ounce samples of beer from you know, all over Arizona, but also all over the country. So, but it was all li- limited to strong beer, so it was mainly IPAs, which I'm not a fan of, uh, and stouts and sours and mm-hmm. all sorts of thick heavy ale heavy ales exactly especially yeah. some scottish ales around too yeah that's actually one of my favorites oh yeah yeah the scottish ale that they have uh here in arizona you like too the kilt lifter right uh which actually just got purchased by anheuser i want to say yeah. one of the big uh, national companies so you, uh, you I know, but it may mean that you can actually get it in uh, Minnesota. So maybe, maybe look on the bright um, side there. <laughs> okay. 
And the only downside is that it was like 90 degrees and then there's no shade. So we're, <laughs> it was hot. It's been hot here. Uh, we're, we're looking for that El Nino to come back and bring us some rain. But <laughs> All right. So first things up this week, uh, we got an email in and um, about the Making a Murderer episode. Um, so uh, I finally remembered it to forward it on to Glenn and... Uh, um, but he, he brought up some interesting questions. It, it, he had lots of just questions throughout this email. Uh, but uh, kind of starting from that Making a Murderer episode, you know, some of the questions came up was first on like bias. The question of should we shield ourselves from this appearance of bias or other misconduct, misconduct uh, with an understanding that we're going to have to jump through hoops because of that and that may uh, end up you know, using more time uh, but is this appearance worth uh, the actual function of actually jumping through all these hoops? Is it is it going to be is it going to be worth the squeeze? Uh, as I believe uh, Ron Smith is fond of saying, right? It's a it's it's a good it's a very good question. Um, do you have an answer? <laughs> well, I I mean this is some, some, seemingly a stereotypical latent print answer but i would say it depends you know um mm. there's there and we've talked about this before there's certain things that that uh you know are good to you know hold back on and not be aware of or, or work uh, you know as blindly as possible and there's other things that really don't matter it doesn't affect us and then there's other things that uh that do affect us but in a positive direction and makes us more accurate so you know it's going to be a, have to be a a, a process to figure those things out and to to work appropriately uh, on our side not doing anything inappropriate that would potentially bias us in a negative way but also on the the you know attorneys or critics side and not not you know having their heads explode just because you know the request form has the suspect's name on it god forbid right yeah i mean the the listener mentioned in particular um, if you've, again, seen the the episodes Making a Murderer, there's a point in there where the DNA analyst essentially gets a request uh, from the investigator saying, we're, we're looking for the victim's DNA um, in the garage. Uh, or, you know, put other words, I think the way... It will, the way the investigator said it, the way that, you know, fingerprint examiners often hear it, we're looking to place the, you know, the victim in the home or in this place or, you know, whatever. We're looking to place them there. Well, that's common language that we hear. Basically, yeah. we're, we're looking for that association to place her in the garage or the home because then that that puts her there, you know, her blood or DNA there. And, you know, the obviously the videos make a, a huge deal about this, uh, especially when, lo and behold, they do find her DNA uh, on the bullet. Uh, that was found in the garage, and more so uh, when initially uh, there were the, a control failed during the test, and so the lab's policy was to go to an inconclusive. Uh, but in this instance, given the critical nature of the evidence, um, they decided to still report it. Uh, if listeners haven't listened to those podcast episodes, go back a couple, a couple. But that sets the yeah. stage. So they're really so good that, episodes. <laughs> so that kind of uh, evidence request form and those kinds of things that we get exposed to, do they have an impact on us? And and even if they don't, should we still just accept that juries, skeptics, critics, 
anyone, uh, media, anyone investigating a case or inspecting a case is going to go, well, you guys should know better. You're scientists. You should have controls in place to present, prevent bias. You, sh- you know, these kind of things. You never know if they're going to affect you, so it's just better safe than sorry. I have a lot of views on this. Um, <laughs> well, this was, that's not how science works. <laughs> and and it's, was, I, I also kind of kind of view it as 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 you know telling the lawyer to go in there the courtroom and start lawyering without telling them what side of the, they're on are they a prosecutor or a defense attorney just go in there and start lawyering you can, you'll figure it out or no you'll just don't want to be you don't you don't want to be biased so mm. well i mean in the one of the papers that we discussed a while ago on the show that um i, I and some colleagues wrote you know we we looked at um you know how often we receive case information, uh, you know, in from uh, investigators, and how often forensic scientists in our laboratory actually communicate with investigators, and so on. And we found it was a very small amount. In fact, about half the cases coming into our lab had nothing other than the evidence request form that said, "Please do latent prints. Please do this. Here's the name of a suspect. Here's the name of the victim." And we considered that essentially minimal case information. Whereas if they had the police report and interviews and de- very detailed or the um, lane print examiner went to the crime scene, we would have considered that a high amount of case context. So one of the criticisms by Roger Koppel and a few of his folks, we've talked about Roger Koppel on the show before, um, one of the things that Roger Koppel said well, was, well, then your entire paper is basically um, – well, you didn't say crap, but the entire paper is flawed. The premise is flawed because those evidence request forms have things exactly like that. Please look for latent prints on the gun. Therefore, that can clearly be biasing you. You know the police are asking for that. And my response to him was, you're, you're an idiot. Um, yes. And, and I really did say this. Um, I basically said that's absolutely ridiculous. Those are kinds of questions that we are tasked with being asked. We know that they're asking that. So if defense was to contact us and say, did you not find my my client's fingerprint? Have they now biased us? And that they're, I mean, these are standard requests. And we routinely don't find prints on items. And we, we routinely do find prints on items. It was very frustrating. Well, I mean, um, how often, you know, when that comes in, I mean, that'd be an interesting kind of thing is if just looking at the cases where they list a victim and a suspect and you have the prints for both, how often do you find the victim yeah. versus the suspect? Well, we measured that. That was exactly one of the things that we measured. Exactly. Okay. And we found that we actually, we did actually identify suspects more often than victims. I actually thought it'd be the other way around, but we did identify suspects more often, although we received more suspect prints to compare against. So the numbers... Um, you know, right, somewhat disproportionate, and and you know a lot. I mean, a big chunk of that would would probably be related to uh, those those um, crime scene officers, uh, you know, limiting their search uh, yeah. of fingerprints to the point of entry or to the things that you know the owner can say that was moved or that was touched or that isn't what should be there. Right, and and that that was one possibility. One possibility was that people at the scene made good decisions about where to look for fingerprints and what fingerprints to bring back. Um, plus, they may have brought back 
the easiest, most clear fingerprint, which we don't like to get into aging of prints, but you know, the, the most recently deposited one may, may have been the clearest one that they brought back. And that was certainly one thing we explored in the paper. Of course, the other possibility is, yeah, okay, we're biased, and that's, and that's why we were catching more suspect prints. I mean, you, we, couldn't, we really couldn't say one way or the other. We simply reported that, generally right. speaking, we tended to identify the suspects more often, all things being equal. If um, you combine that, though, with, like, uh, APHIS searches, where, where you know, there is no expectation that this print belongs to, you know, a certain person because there's no suspect at all listed or victim listed. Right. It's just launched. Um, and, you know, the comparison gets reported out. And uh, at least for me, I have no idea who this person is. Um, yeah. And I, sometimes I can make some just you know, educated guesses that, hey, this person has the same last name uh, as the person who's listed as the victim, even though I didn't have that victim's fingerprints uh so it probably is you know related to the victim um or if i uh you know find an officer's prints you know i I mean he could have been the the suspect but it probably is just the officer that was at the scene and either way it just all gets reported the same way and gets gets sent out there you know this is a this is a opportunity to find uh you know bias and errors because uh, how easy would it be just to identify the first person on the list and you know, say that oh go arrest that guy and he's you know hasn't lived in town for years or I mean or he's dead or you know it, and that yeah. just doesn't happen no and not with re- not with regularity um, I have seen it happen before well but right in, in in some cases of error um, yeah but so that all said on the other hand my I also can see that, in, you know, in my opinion, and I stress that this is just my personal opinion and doesn't represent any employer of mine or any other <laughs> views or anyone that I work for or subcontract for. Um, I don't know that forensic agencies do enough, actually, to prevent possible issues of bias or even recognize uh, possible situations when examiners are put into biasing situations. And frankly, even if they aren't biased, uh, as the listener's pointing out, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the agency they work for, the position that they get put in, has now put them in a biasing situation where the perception of bias is very real, and they will be challenged on that. Don't you know any better? Aren't you a scientist? Don't you know about bi- you know, anti-biasing techniques? Don't you know that you're not supposed to do this when you do your test and know this when you do it can make for a really uncomfortable position on the stand. So if your agency, you know, expects you to read evidence submission reports and there are, you know, police reports or confessions or other information in there, and that's part of the thing that you get exposed to, I do think that crime labs sometimes put scientists in very untenable situations. And if that agency does not have any kind of blind verification policy, I think they really do set their examiners up for some difficult times. As the listener points out, you know, times are changing and that there are different expectations in the courtroom today and a lot of skepticism towards forensic science and law enforcement. So I agree with you, Eric, on the one hand. (laughs) Um, (laughs) on, On the one hand, you know, it seems very silly. On the other hand, I think we have to recognize that we have to do everything we can to remove that 
specter. Um, you know, um, I can share a story with you and the listeners, uh, something sure. that uh, is very, very close to me. And I don't know if I've ever talked about it on the podcast before. If I have, well, tough, you'll hear it again. Um, but <laughs> I had a case, a very high profile case years ago. And in fact, they did a forensics file, forensic files episode on it. Um, but it was a high-profile Minnesota case, an unsolved case, and I had a lot of motivation to solve this case because week after week they continued to bring suspects for me to look at for just years and years and years and years. And um, at some point I knew, I had learned uh, that the DNA section actually basically made a hit on it. Um, they had, because it was a, a mixture, and a, you know, um, a partial profile mixture, they would get these long lists of potential suspects because there would be plenty of people in the database who could be potential contributors. And then the investigators would go through and eliminate them one by one. And they, they eventually came around to one person that couldn't be eliminated and who was a potential contributor. And when they investigated his wife at the time, they got her profile and found that the mixture found at the evidence at the scene would have been a perfect mixture of these two individuals. So they were fairly convinced at that point that they had the guy, but then they needed me to do a palm print comparison, which would then place the individual in this building that he had claimed never to have been in before. And I knew all that going into this examination. So one would argue I'm highly motivated, I'm contaminated with biasing information, and I know what the police are looking for. They're, they're looking for me to place him at the scene. So... The palm prints, though, were dead easy. I mean, they were, I mean, hundreds yeah. of minutiae, the entire hypothenar, clear as day, beautiful palm prints. But in that case, I chose to do a blind verification, which, given the difficulty of the exam, was probably unnecessary. But I just knew that all of these arguments would come back to haunt me during trial if I didn't do that because it was such a high-profile case. And uh, so I did it, and the uh, you know the verifier confirmed them, no problem. Didn't take him that much extra time to do it. And sure enough, when this is going to trial, I get the call from the lawyers, and they are preparing a Daubert hearing for this case. And they asked lots and lots of questions. And when they got to the fun last question, they said, oh, your verifier, um, when he did his verification, and he knew what your conclusions were, right? And he had your report and everything. He knew what, th what those conclusions were ahead of time. I said, no, no, he didn't. I explained what a blind verification was, and he didn't know what case this was, who any of the people involved were, any names. He didn't get just the suspect's prints, but he got the suspect and a couple of other people, um, you know, so like foils, like a lineup, and he was able to reach the same conclusions I reached not knowing what he was looking at. And the attorney went, huh, oh, all right, well, uh, <laughs> Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll uh, be going a different route than that. And I found out later that they they dropped the Daubert hearing specifically because of that. So, are there times that these kinds of things would be helpful and take that off the table? I I absolutely believe so. And I know in my private casework I use blind verification quite a bit, and the defense attorneys love it because as skeptical as they are about fingerprint evidence, when I'm basically using blinding techniques, they just basically have to concede and go okay well all right we we have to accept that this is a valid identification at that point as skeptical as they are about it they really like those techniques but they are time consuming they take up resources 
and the difference is in private casework, I charge them that extra time and they're more than willing to pay it. I would not want to do that in every case in a crime laboratory. So I think we have to really pick our and choose our battles and situations carefully when those kinds of tools would be most useful. I think in the making the murderer case, <laughs> an inconclusive, borderline, you know, problematic uh, DNA profile might have might have been helpful to have had a blind technical review of some sort <laughs> with that right. case. I mean, I think that's exactly the kind of case where a blind technical review um, would essentially could could be very useful. And then, aside from the control being an issue, they could have at least had someone else confirming the you know the validity of the DNA match without knowing what case it was or what who was involved or anything like that. So. Um, I think the listener brings up some really good points about uh, about the perception of bias. Even if it might not be there, the perception can be strong enough that it might warrant um, blinding techniques. Yeah, you know, um, so some of the other questions that he has here. Um, you know, first, go back into you know fairly recent episode talking about the uh, the U.S. Army Crime Lab, or I can't remember what their what their new term is they, they've renamed themselves something else but um uh, their new term basically of having a, a, a an association a specific language describing an association between these two prints you know, rather than describing that as an identification uh, and he asks um does this you know have this is that a more appropriate scientific backing away uh, from from a loaded term or from a, a a biasing term, you know, this, this buzzword of identification. And, you know, does this, um, does this backing away better serve the public as a whole? You know, should we be looking at serving the public in general instead of serving the courts and the cops that we've traditionally served? And uh, I don't know, that's a, that's a tough question because it seems increasingly that the if he's specifically talking about you know jurors here it seems increasingly that they want us they want forensics to give them the answer you know that that's mm -hmm. that that's what they've been trained to do by tv is is have a scientist come in and tell them you know what what answer to give should i find this person you know guilty or not guilty i mean it's kind of a shame that they've kind of come to that because i don't know i don't I don't know if you know, that was the you know the original intent for forensic science to begin with, or even what forensic scientists are seeking to do now. You know, it's more of okay, this is this is what I know. Now you guys got to take that with everything else that you've heard and and come up with your answer. But I I can't give you the answer of guilt or innocence or guilty or not guilty. I can just tell you, you know, he made the print, he didn't make the print, or you know, I don't know. Or you know maybe um, uh, in some special circumstances, you know even kind of I'm leaning this way or I'm leaning that way, you know, that 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 may actually be not what the juries want. Yeah, I, you know I the story that Ron Smith would often tell stands out to me the one where he's golfing with someone who was you know had sat on a jury, and uh, you know asked you know the juror this person who's a juror, you know, what is it that, you know, you want from a forensic scientist? And he said, you know, I want to be able to sleep at night. And right. Ron didn't quite understand what it was that he was saying. And then the, you know, the juror clarified, said that, 
when I make this very, very difficult decision, I want to be able to sleep at night knowing I made the right decision. And I need you to come into the courtroom and help me make that decision. And then, which is what you're, you're talking about. Do, but what does that mean? Does that mean I need it very clearly? This is an identification, and it's him, and I can tell you with a lot of certainty, I believe it's his print. Or does the guy want to know, it's very likely his print. There's always some possibility of error or misinterpretation, but yeah, it's very likely his print. Or does the guy want to hear, well, we could not exclude this individual as a source. I, I think th- these three answers are drastically different yeah. and, uh, w- and, and convey very different weights of evidence. And um, I'm, I'm, I, I think we have to do a little better than that. You know, another service you know, for the greater public, right? Not just the cops, not just the courts, uh, not just the attorneys, but the public as a whole. You know, how much are you willing to pay for the extra cost that some of this stuff is going to come down to? I'm not mm-hmm. saying that that you know we should we should um, not do something that's going to reduce error just because it's it's uh, it's cheaper. Like obviously cost is not a consideration when when getting the right answer out of a forensic science lab but um but what i'm saying is spending additional money for possibly and even probably not a whole lot of improvement in the accuracy you know is that for the public good and i don't know i i think think you've made this argument before meaning that the number of false positives are so small and if we're concerned about making false positives, then why spend all this money on these anti-biasing techniques or sequential unmasking, etc., if we're attempting to prevent the kind of error that only happens relatively infrequently to begin with? Perhaps, if anything, we should be spending more money on more comparisons or techniques to reduce the number of false negatives. And I mean that's another thing because I mean that would you know that that would tend to make the public safer by finding more more of the bad guys maybe, but um, you know even still, should we at least not not just you know focusing on this other thing with with the with that has the more errors because I understand that the false uh, positive is a more serious error for a specific person in in a lot of cases, but you know maybe we can at least evaluate whether or not you know changes in policy that are kind of elaborated uh by by critics or by um by defense attorneys that they're actually effective in doing what they are actually you know wanting to do you know and weigh that against the cost i think your your study is really a you know a good look at that i mean the amount of work and and extra money it would take to to do some of the things would basically you know, double the expenses of your unit. You know, what for what end? There was only that one case uh, where it with, would have made a, a potential difference in, 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 our, the, in our view. In your study, right? Um, right. Although Koppel has had a different viewpoint, uh, of course. But but as you orig- already have stated, that's stupid. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, I, I I respect the difference of opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except I, I just feel tomato, like tomato. way wrong. <laughs> yeah. 
So no, uh, I mean, I, I I think there are plenty of very well-meaning individuals who do yes. have good suggestions about improvements to crime labs, and I don't dispute that. And I don't dispute finding ways to do sequential unmasking and such. I mean, I I'm a proponent of this. I just agree with you as well that they we must test these things before blindly going in and just instituting them without knowing the full impact. Uh, you know whether or not it will create more false positives, more false negatives, more work, more time. Um, I I think high throughput laboratories really need to think about how information either makes them more efficient or potentially could be damaging to a case or cause problems. I mean, right. I, I think information cuts both ways. The thing that I, I I keep falling back on: information is information. And that if you have different information than another analyst in the case, it may lead you to a different conclusion. It may lead you to the correct conclusion. It may lead you to an incorrect conclusion. It, it, it may not lead you to any different. But I think we have seen enough instances and examples that simply having different information can cause different outcomes in cases. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, the listener for uh, yeah. for for writing in uh, on the making a murderer thing and for asking great really email. good questions. Yeah, it really was a great email. Yeah, um, you can see that he uh, thinks a lot and probably has has a lot of time on the way home thinking and <laughs> about this. And I'm very much the same way. I just sometimes these things just roll around in my head, and you can see that this this person really really has a lot going on so thank you very much um uh, for your email uh, the listener asked if we wouldn't use the name and agency so then we have not so we'll just refer to him as mike from bangor from mount maine mount rushmore okay i like that mike from mount rushmore okay he lives in the back Deadwood, south dakota yeah yeah we kind of went um you know, down different paths from some of these questions. And I think the, the listener here is, is really just asking questions that, that come out of, of a critics or defense attorneys or the making a murderer program or, uh, some, you know, new, uh, new steps that people like the U S army crime lab uh, is taking. And I think that's great that, that, that these questions get brought up. And if, if nothing else, that there's somebody, you know, in his agency, him in his agency, uh, or in our field saying, okay, not necessarily, let's not necessarily go all the way and do all this stuff, but let's, let's actually think about it. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds crazy, but you know, what, what if we did do this, you know, what are the pros right. and cons? And, uh, and it's, it's always important to continually do that. Uh, I'm a big believer in, in in uh, getting that answer of of of, uh, of asking your quality assurance person or your crime lab director or your supervisor whoever why are we doing this like like what's what's the history why why are we actually doing this mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes that just you know you get just get told to sit down and shut up but sometimes they go you know what I I don't really know we maybe we don't need to do this anymore. Um, uh, and uh, you know that can definitely lead to improvements in, in the lab. Um, I'm I'm with you 100. percent The the only thing I add to that is I love trying new things and questioning the same way. I just want to make sure that we've we've got some data before 
and right. after we make the change exactly. so we can actually see if it was effective and that's that's the th- I, I love that when agencies are willing to try new things as long as we have some metrics to show what effect it's having and I'm would be more than pleased to do these kinds of sequential unmaskings and such in laboratories if you know management supported it if we could measure a before and after and, and make sure that you know it was having the intended impact given costs Right, and I'm very much looking forward to, you know, hearing after a year or so uh, how the Army Crime Lab, um, you know, has uh, has been affected by the changes that they've made, and um, Houston, you know, being this kind of public-private enterprise now, mm-hmm. you know, after a couple of years, hearing how that's affected them, um, you know, any other labs that are doing, you know, all-blind verification or 100% verification. Yeah, definitely get that data beforehand so that after you make a change that you can collect the data afterwards right. uh, to uh, to see how it all goes. So, all right. Well, Glenn, um, we'll uh, close out uh, this episode. Um, hoping you'll get better soon. I do love the, the new, you know, the new sexy deep Glenn voice that you got going on there. Um, <laughs> oh, but thanks. I'm trying to compete with yours. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, you know, hopefully you are feeling here better soon. But, um you know, if you have any more questions, we do love getting these emails. So, uh, you know, if you're listening out there and haven't sent in an email yet, you know, go ahead and send us that uh, longtime listener, first time emailer. Uh, and then we also love our regulars as well. Uh, check me out now on Twitter at uh, Ray Forensics and then email us uh, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Uh, listen every week on Twitter. It's on Twitter, on SoundCloud. I'm on Twitter on the brain now. On SoundCloud, Stitcher, or on iTunes. And (laughs) we'll see you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Music provided on this podcast by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com. (laughs) 